I had to double check my figures on this this week, and I was surprised. There are 7.28 billion people approximately in the world right now. Anybody ever looked at that statistic recently? I was still thinking 6 billion. 7.28, isn't that crazy? 7.28, about 107 billion people have ever existed is the estimate. I don't know if those are totally correct. They're probably ballpark figures. We can't know those exact numbers. Uh, But let's bring it a little more down to to our level. Uh, There was some research done in the 90s that pointed out that, um, you know, you look at those big numbers and you think there's no way we could know all those people. But there was research done in the 90s that suggested that the average brain can handle 150 sort of reasonably stable and with any depth relationships in their life which is interesting, right? Now, businesses have actually kind of built their models around this in some cases, that 150 is kind of where you max out as a community. Churches, this is one of the reasons that 150 is one of those hard numbers to break past for an awful lot of churches because it seems to ring ring true in our lives that, that there's a maximum number of people that we can kind of know with any depth. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but it's it's sometimes I take my human limitations and I transpose them onto God. Do you ever do this? Where you think, I'm limited in these ways. God might be able to do more than that, but, but we unthinkingly sometimes just transpose those limitations. So God certainly can have more than 150 stable relationships, but 7.28 billion? 107 billion? Does God know the exact numbers, first of all? Is God able to know all the names of those people, the hair color, the height, everything about them? Sometimes we easily transpose our human limitations onto God. God, maybe God didn't know all of those people or with, with the same depth. But no, in fact, God does. God is fully capable of that. And what's fascinating, I was reading, I read this wonderful quote from uh, David Benner, The Gift of Being Yourself, this week. He said, it is quite astounding, astounding, that's the word, it's quite astounding that God wants to be known by human beings. But nothing gives him more pleasure. Not only... Does God want to know us? God can and God does. Isn't that a remarkable thing this morning? That the God of the universe, the creator, actually takes pleasure in knowing you and me. Are you with me this morning? This is good news today. Now, we've been looking at the character of Saul, King Saul of the Old Testament. I like to remind us, not Saul in the New Testament. Totally different people. One was probably named after the other, though, is my guess. King Saul of the Old Testament. Even God wanted a relationship with King Saul in the Old Testament. He wanted that. He loved King Saul in the Old Testament. But Saul had issues. Saul was disobedient rather than obedient. We saw that in our text from 1 Samuel 15 this morning. Saul was dishonest in his dealings with other humans, for sure. Samuel, particularly, the priest and, and prophet and judge that anointed him, but also dishonest in his dealings with God, ultimately. Saul turns out to be a man of limited integrity. What you see is not what you get. What's going on inside is not what he's showing you on the outside. It's not the same thing. It's not a a unified whole between those two. And while he had a humble start, he ends up having a prideful end. And we can see that, that... Through Saul's problems, we've been doing this character study. We can see some things that that we need to kind of pinpoint in ourselves. They're going to come to a head today. Saul's problems and what God does with it. And let's put this in the bigger story. 
of what God has been doing and, and even promises that are given to us. Because from the very beginning, God created and God cares about us. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them some commands. I want you to enjoy this place. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. I want you to take care of what I've created. And God was supposed to have this intimate relationship with his creation. And, and these weren't, just so we know, plastic plants in the Garden of Eden, right? They were going to grow in the garden. Adam and Eve were supposed to grow as well and, and grow in that knowledge of God. And God was taking them somewhere even in the garden, as far as we can tell. But the relationship was broken. And as Paul reminds us in Romans, it, didn't, it wasn't just the human-to-God relationship and the human-to-human relationship. It's creation itself got frustrated in the whole thing. Creation groans for its redemption. It was by our sin that creation has suffered as well, right? This, the, the, our sin doesn't just affect me and God. It doesn't just affect me and you. It affects my dog chasing the squirrels in the backyard, right? The squirrels wish that the, the, the situation were different, I think. But God then spends the rest of Scripture fixing the problem and working on the problem. Thanks be to God that God does that because God creates, and in some ways that initial contract with humans can be called a covenant in a sense, a promise, that God gives us. But God creates these covenants along the way with his people to try and redeem them, to fix the problem. So you see the covenant with Noah, never again to destroy the world like he did. And the rainbow is given. God sets down his bow on the ground. I will not do this again. He's going to work out the rescue plan for creation. Now, that, there's a warning that's there with Noah as well that we should heed. But never again is that going to be the way God does this. God's going to work out the rescue plan. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and this is important to our story today. When God makes the covenant with Abraham, he says, Through your descendants, I'm going to bless everyone. And anyone who blesses you, I'll bless. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. That comes into play today. And not only that, if we ever wonder, did they remember those covenants, part of that covenant was the mark of circumcision. So at least half the population had a visible, regular memory of that and a mark, a physical mark of the covenant that they had with God. Then God makes a covenant with Israel by giving the law. This is how we walk together and this is how you function as my people to show the world my character, to act as the priests of the world, to bring them in to my presence. That's what they're supposed to do. And eventually, we're not going to get there today, but eventually there's a covenant made with David that gets realized then in the Messiah, Jesus. And the covenant fulfillment by the days of, of even Saul can be realized through the gift of life, through the gift of freedom, through the gift of law, and through the gift of land. All those things are tangible things that the people in the land can experience and see the covenant in their presence. And I want to recognize this morning that the covenant doesn't just end there. It continues on. You and I are a part of this very promise of God, particularly from the very beginning of that promise that we should be able to enjoy this life and what God has created and be in relationship with God. And so what I want to point out this morning is our sort of main point is that God's promise to creation, to you and me, is fulfilled by the transformation of his people. We need to be transformed. There's still growth required and a transformation required out of us to get out of what's broken by sin and to become redeemed and whole in Christ. God wants transformation. We need health. 
We need wholeness. Those things are required for a relationship with God to function and prosper. Those are the, the things that we call holiness and righteousness, that health and wholeness. And God wants that for you and for me. Isn't that good news this morning? That God wants us in relationship. But to get there, God needs to transform us. That's what we're going to see as we look at the story. Now, we'll get to the text in a moment, but I want to give you the backstory. So the text this morning will be 1 Samuel 16. If you're following along, I encourage you to do so. Uh, but I want to recap a little bit of what, how we got there. And we'll just make a point right away from, from where this will go, and that is transformation begins by acknowledging that I'm far from God, but God wants me back. We have to acknowledge that first and foremost before we're going to move forward to be transformed by God. And Saul illustrates for us, as we've been looking at Saul this summer, he illustrates the thing that confounds this reality, that God wants us in relationship, because Saul is prideful. Praise that belongs to God, he turns on himself. That's what he's doing. That's pride. And even the things of life, freedom, law, and land. He regards them when he needs them. He disregards them when he doesn't. And he'll take credit for things that he shouldn't take credit for. Even you can see, uh, if you read back in the story, this is in between some of the parts that we've read, Jonathan, Saul's son, will have a military victory. And who takes credit? Saul. Saul takes credit for things that shouldn't, he shouldn't take credit for. And we have a difficult story. In chapter 15, we heard a little, the middle of that story today, where God called Saul and the Israelites to destroy the Amalekites. It's challenging, and I don't want to get too caught up in the nitty-gritty of this and, and stuck in the weeds on this, but we ought to make mention of some of what's going on here. We have to, in fact. The reality is that, that Saul doesn't follow God's instructions, and he spares king and cattle as it turns out, which are not things he was supposed to spare. It said completely destroy the Amalekites and all the stuff that goes along with it. He didn't. Now, the, the thing that this is, uh, that's highlighted here is what we call harem. Uh, it's Hebrew, which, which usually kind of people talk about as Yahweh war. That is, God commanded them to do something and to go into battle against a particular people. And Israel is supposed to go into battle, and it's supposed to fully rely on God's power... And, and the, all the details of the battle are going to look like that. Everything they do should, should reveal God's power, not their own, is the reason that they won the battle and were be able to be victorious. Part of the deal, then, is there's nothing that can be taken from the battle. No plunder. And that's what you see. What is this bleeding of sheep, right? Why do I hear something I'm not supposed to hear, Samuel says. You weren't supposed to take anything. And look at all this stuff that you took. You weren't, that's not yours, that's God's. And, of course, Saul tries to cover and say, oh, yeah, we were going to sacrifice it to God anyways. But that wasn't the instruction. The instruction was completely destroy. And, and the, that word harem is a ban or a curse. And that's where the covenant with Abraham matters. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. In this particular case, you see the Amalekites, who were ankle biters to the Israelites, through and through, killing off uh, in the past their, the sick and the elderly and the small as they traveled through the land, who were inhospitable to them every single time they had the chance to be hospitable, who had been warned, who now it was so deep in their civilization, it just couldn't be rooted out, the sin that was there. And God says, now, I'm going to stand by my covenant. Whoever curses you, I will curse this is hard for us to hear, and I'm not suggesting that it should be easy for us to hear. I will point out, 
uh, that usually in these cases it's hyperbolic language that's used in the Old Testament. Does it mean destroy everything? Not necessarily everything, because I'll tell you, if you read the book of Esther, there's likely Haman, the bad guy, is likely an Amalekite in there. So not everything is destroyed in the process, uh, but it means basically break the back of the civilization so it won't ever rise again. That's what it means. And so they're supposed to do that. But this event becomes the pinnacle of Saul's pride. He's already been disobedient to God up until this point. He's supposed to obey. He doesn't fully obey. He tries to cover it as if he did obey. And God says, I'm rejecting him as king. This is enough. I'm going to fulfill this a different way. So Saul gives in to pride, right? Taking praise that should belong to God for the gifts that God has given and the blessings that God has given and taking that praise and putting it on something else, someone else, or yourself in some way. That's what Saul does. And what does pride do? Uh, Pastor Craig Rochelle states it well. He said, pride breaks God's heart. He said, pride is God-repellent. It pushes God away. That's the effect. And so we can ask ourselves, just like Saul, in what way do I praise God for what belongs to God, and in what way do I take that on myself? Do I praise myself or others for things that God has rightly given me? We have to ask ourselves that just like Saul, right? Because if we, when we start doing that, when we let pride rule over us, we miss out on the one, one essential relationship we should have, which is the one with God. We break that. We push God away. Saul does that. So what happens? Here's where we get to our text. 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 1. A very good place to start. We'll read the first five verses. It won't come up on the screen. It'll just say 1 Samuel 16. Uh, because it's a lot to, to put on the screen. So, it says 1 Samuel 13 anyways, which I should talk to the pastor about that. All right. So 1 Samuel 16 is where we're reading. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes. In peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. Can you sense in the text that there's some fear in the air? I mean, not only Samuel, it's very interesting to me the way it kicks off that Samuel is mourning the loss of Saul. Samuel was obedient from the beginning and anointing Saul and was kind of questioning the whole thing from the beginning and now he's trying to hold on to something that God is trying to move on from. Do you ever do that in life? Sometimes God is calling us to something else and we mourn the loss of what's behind, not thinking of the promise of what's ahead. Saul, Samuel is not seeing that here. There's fear in the air. And it's coming from Saul, by the way. Saul is causing part of this problem. Saul disobeyed God 
people are finding Saul a little bit unpredictable and hard to work with. Uh, And so now Samuel fears what Saul is going to do as the ruler because Saul is succumbing to what most ancient kings succumb to, which is paranoia. Something's always trying to get your power. Saul is is giving in to that. He could lose his power. He knows that Samuel has some power here. Samuel then is being obedient, but he fears Saul because likely a paranoid king has spies following around the main prophet of Israel. They're probably keeping tabs on him. Jesse, then they come to Bethlehem, which is a well-known community, historically important. They come to Bethlehem uh, and talk to Jesse, and Jesse and crew probably know about the falling out between Samuel and Saul already. They can detect that something's in the air, so why is Samuel coming to us? Does he want a resistance army? Is Saul going to come after us? What's going to happen if no matter what happens here? It seems like they're on the losing end, but they're faithful. And what do they do? They consecrate themselves. And I want to point out that this is a fearful time, and these are people who are living in fear, not sure what's going to go on, but can you see that God is still trying to fulfill his promise in the midst of a fearful situation? And even in our own lives, God can do that. Even when we're having difficult times, there are fearful times, we're not sure what's ahead. God can still fulfill his promises, and he will if we're obedient. That's good news this morning. So they come to the town, they consecrate themselves, which is to prepare or to devote or set aside for God's use. And I was struck by that this week in thinking about how often it is that when we're going to do God's work, we want to just do God's work. And we don't want to prepare as much as we sometimes need to. They consecrated themselves. They didn't just say, oh, the sacrifice is done this way and this way and this way. Let's go do it. No, they stopped. Consecration, which involves cleansing. It involves forgiveness of sin, that sort of thing. And, and, and I thought to myself, do I consecrate myself on a regular basis to do God's work? I mean, I set aside time in the morning to try and pray, where I try and confess sin in the morning. That's consecration. If you do that, you're, you're beginning your day with consecration. If many of you do quiet times uh, or those sorts of times, that can be an act of consecration. If we're taking the time to actually prepare, to ask for things like forgiveness and to say, ask for God's direction in what's coming up ahead or looking behind if it's at the end of the day. We do it as an act, uh, as a church, once a month at least when we take communion. I don't know if you realize this. You guys consecrate yourselves when we say, okay, let's stop and ask forgiveness. Let's silence our hearts before God and hand over anything that needs to be redeemed. That's an act of consecration. But how often do we do this intentionally to consecrate ourselves for the day ahead? Say, God, you've called me into this workplace, into this school, into wherever it is, into the grocery store. Consecrate me for this. Set me aside to do your work so I can see your will working through me so your good news goes out for me. I was really challenged by that this week, that they stopped. Instead of just doing the work, they stopped to prepare for the work. That matters if we're going to do God's work. And so they do. And it's contrasted then because that's exactly the thing Saul doesn't do. He just does the work. He doesn't prepare a bit for it. He does the work and he does it wrong. Uh, in, in fact, and you see that contrast with Jesse and his crew. They prepare, and they recognize that God is up to something because they do that. They stop. They say, okay, God is doing something. Let's be ready. Do you consecrate your day to the Lord? Is there a way that you can consecrate your day each day 
to the Lord and the Lord's work so that you are ready, so that I'm ready to do what God's called us to do. Second thing I want to point out about transformation is that transformation requires honesty, and it requires it about my own sinfulness, your own sinfulness, and God's righteousness, and the vast difference between those two things. That we are, in fact, sinful from the start, and we need to take care of that. If you go to the doctor, if I went to the doctor, and the doctor came back, and some of us are living this reality, and they said it's cancer, I can tell you what none of us will say. None of us would say, you know what, doctor? Can you just give me some motivational and inspirational words and a pill that will kind of just make me feel a little better, and I'll just come visit you maybe once a week, and we'll do that? None of us are going to do that, are we? I I mean, if if you are, you can correct me later. No, we're going to say, zap it, cut it out, do something to kill the cancer inside of me. And yet, do you find it interesting that sometimes we can easily go to Scripture not for transformation, but for inspiration? That's the reason we go there too often. God, just give me something to, to get through the day and to feel good, rather than can you transform me by your words given to me as a gift. You've blessed me with your word. You've blessed me with the ability to be in your presence when I call upon you. Now transform me through those things. Don't just inspire me. Don't just motivate me. Those things can happen. But transform me. And transform us. That's part of the prayer. Because God's covenant promise isn't just to an individual, but to his people. And we constitute part of that promise as his people. 1 Peter 2.9 is one of those uh, verses that kind of points out what this looks like. That how the old covenant sort of is working in, in the people. But you are a chosen people, Peter writes, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It's the same concept that was going on in the Old Testament, that they would be a holy people gathered together. We're part of that promise, called to live that out together, to be transformed into those people. Isn't that a good thing? Transformation requires honesty about my own sinfulness and God's righteousness. And let's recognize that God's doing a new thing. God's doing a new thing in the text here. If we go back to 1 Samuel 16, let's go to 6 and round it out to chapter to verse 13, where we have the sons of Jesse come forward. So verse 6 says, When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, that's the oldest son, and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands before, here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and, said, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Now as a parent, how would you be feeling at this point, right? Three kids, these are the strongest and the best. They're not the ones. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance with handsome features. 
Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Eight sons in, that's finally the anointed one. Now, let's do a little number work here. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. Seven is a number of completion or finality. It's, it's the perfect sort of perfection, if you will. Uh, the eighth, the number eight then in the Hebrew mind is the, something new. It's the day after the perfection. It's something new is going on when you get to the number eight. And so here you have the eighth son. God is doing something new in the kingdom. Just like you'll see, because God's going to make a covenant with David for his line for the Messiah, just like you see with Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross and dies, he dies on the sixth day, he rests on the seventh day, and what happens on the eighth day? New creation. Something new is happening. So here we get a precursor of that, uh, that on the the eighth son, something new is going on here. So let's recognize, folks, out of our lives can sometimes be a mess, sometimes be difficult, and out of the mess of our lives, whether it's self-inflicted or inflicted upon us, God can bring something new. Isn't that good? God can redeem us, even if things seem to be going wrong. God can salvage his plan and his blessing, no matter what's going on in our lives. And he will. And so God does that here among his people to fulfill his promises. When you prepare yourself for God's presence, you should recognize that God, you should expect God to show up and work. And they prepared themselves, they consecrated. And what does God do? He chooses the eighth son. Something new is going to go on. Would that happen in our lives as well? If you look at Saul, then, comparing back, because we looked at David and our focus is Saul, not David, through this series. If you look at Saul, what's the one thing Saul misses most in all of this? That God seeks most in all of this. It's a holy relationship. He wants that with Saul. He wants that with his people. That's how it's supposed to work out. That the people will be faithful and they'll bring the world in to that holy relationship. But he doesn't even get it with Saul. Saul keeps deflecting. Saul keeps taking and heaping the praise on himself when it belongs to God. I was again struck by a quote from David Benner, who I quoted at the beginning. Um, He says this, and see if this rings true for you. He says, Some Christians speak of a personal encounter with Jesus as if this were a one-time matter, something that happens at conversion. This is a tragic confusion of an introduction and relationship. A first encounter is just that, a first encounter. What God longs for us to experience is intimate knowing that comes by means of ongoing relationship. That's what God wants out of us, is a holy relationship, an ongoing relationship, not just the one-time commitment. If I think of this in practical terms, how this works out, uh, I was thinking about my own marriage with Stephanie. We're almost to the 14-year mark, and when we got married, a week after we got married, we moved to Canada, and we were living out in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we knew nobody. We were, in fact, even homeless for a little while there. We had all of our stuff in a trailer that we owned in the world, and that was it, the two of us together as I was going to go to graduate school with no place to live. You can ask her about the details later because she tells the stories better than I do. But you know what happened during that time? 
because we had just a week before that vowed better and worse sickness and health, right? And wealth and poverty and uh, seemed more poverty or the less than the more at, at those early stages. But we, we sought to live those out together. And the first couple of years especially, we grew together very closely, but it was because it was hard. It was because of the difficult times that we had to stay together and figure it out. And now, you know what? It makes the good times even better because we have that history. And we live that history together. And we were vowed together in covenant relationship to see it through. That makes the good times much better. It makes the harder times easier to stick together. We started out with a time of preparation, a consecration to get into the relationship And then we covenanted together. And it works. That's what God wants from us. To cleanse ourselves from sin, to be able to draw close in relationship and stick it out with God and grow with God in covenant relationship through thick and thin. And what that means finally then if we're looking at transformation is that transformation requires change, which almost seems redundant to say, doesn't it? It requires change. Change Change can be scary to a whole lot of us. But can I tell you, God's promises are better than my fears. God's promises are better than your fears. Do you believe it this morning? That God has something better. Samuel grieves for the loss of Saul, but God has something better. Let us not grieve the loss of things that we fear if God has something better for us on the other side. There are lots of things we can give up and give away so that we have a healthy whole relationship with our Heavenly Father. Who wants that? Who seeks us out? Isn't that an amazing thing this morning? But the thing I was struck with this week as well is that there are a lot of things that hold us back from that healthy relationship with our Creator. And it is difficult because sometimes, I was, this was brought to my attention as I was researching the, the message, for a lot of us, We know our casual acquaintances and our Facebook friends that we would invite to our homes, but we know only through online experiences. We know a lot of them better than we know God. We've spent a lot more time. We could tell you an awful lot more detail about some of our casual acquaintances than we could about the character of God. And so we need to change that if we're going to be transformed and drawn to that holy relationship with God. So that means that we don't just go to God in prayer with a list of requests. That's not bad, but we need to expand beyond that. But we go to God confessing, asking for forgiveness, seeking that relationship that we would grow with God. We go to God not just, uh, or we go to Scripture not just to read Scripture, but to be read, right? Not just to inform and inspire, but to be transformed by God's Word flowing through us. We attend church, not just to attend, but to engage with God's covenant people. That's why we're here, and we do these things like VBS and small groups and those things so that we would grow together in that relationship with God and with his people. And we we are transformed when we don't simply befriend those who need Christ, but we serve them, and we share the goodness of God in our lives with them. Transformation requires a number of things out of us, but God's promise to creation is fulfilled by the transformation of his people. Are you in on that this morning? Are you ready to be transformed, to consecrate yourselves? 
to let his word wash over you, to find that holy relationship as we draw close to him in prayer. Would that be our prayer today? Let's pray together now. Father, I thank you that you desire so deeply to have a holy relationship with us. I pray that indeed this morning we are transformed by your word, that we look at the character of Saul, and we say, I don't just want to pretend to obey you, but I really want to obey. I don't just want to look like I have the love of you, but I actually want to love you. God, that we would serve your people and serve those who don't know you. That we would serve as your people and be transformed. That we would recognize the covenant that you've given us and the promises that you've given us of life and of freedom and of that freedom realized in Christ. That we would be transformed in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, to be more like you so that we can walk with you that we would be drawn into your presence as we share your goodness with those around us. That when we share, we're transformed even in the sharing. And that when we share, others are transformed. And that we are consecrated for those moments, prepared so that we don't miss the work of your Spirit in the lives of those around us who desperately need you. Father, let us not miss the work of your Spirit in us, in others. Let us be prepared and consecrated, handed over to your service for your work in this world that you love. We pray this in your name. Amen.